The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. Good afternoon. This is Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. And this afternoon, I'm with Richard Bernstein, who not only is an old friend and was correspondent was Time Bureau Chief in 1980 uh, when I lived in Beijing, so a truly old friend, uh, but has just written a wonderful book, China 1945, Mao's Revolution and America's Fateful Choice, which is a book which makes history read like a novel. So it is truly a book worth reading. It's a fascinating period. Now, I must admit I must fully disclose that I am particularly interested in this period because 43 years ago, I wrote my BA thesis on the formation of Chinese communist policy towards the United States in 1945 to 44, 45, and 46, which I called the crucial years, so not not so unlike uh, what Richard has done. Well, what brought you to 1945. Why? You've written so many books. What? Why 1945? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> start off with an easy question. Uh, first, Steve, thanks for having me and thanks for those kind words. Um, it's great to be with you. Um, I was looking for a kind of crux moment. I mean, first of all, I'm a book writer. Uh, that's how I pay the rent. I was looking for a topic. And I wanted to do something on China uh, that uh, would examine some kind of critical moment in the relationship between the United States and China and the formation of China itself, uh, and also a, a moment that would be at the origins of what has become a long-term American issue, and that is how to deal with revolutionary movements in Asia. what happens when we find ourselves with a corrupt and ineffective uh, regime that's on our side uh, opposed to a revolutionary regime that's not on our side. And this problem in one form or another has bedeviled the United States uh, certainly since 1945, and it continues to bedevil us. um, Think about Afghanistan and Iraq. Vietnam, Afghanistan. Uh, Iraq uh, today, uh, uh, yes, all of those, all of those things seem to me to be kind of variations on the theme that I knew vaguely began with the United States uh, in China sometime around the war. And as I looked at it, I thought, well, the, fr- the few months before the end of the war and the few months after the end of the war of World War II, I mean, were as good a time as any to examine these these issues. So that's how I. That's how I came to that year. Mm-hmm. So kind of, was it studying with John Fairbank? Was it, I mean, it, not many people think of that. It, I think of it as the crucial time, but I think we're, we may be a minority of two. Um, well, there, I'm not really sure about that because don't forget, I mean, there have been some important studies of this. Uh, there's, a, there's a literature here mm-hmm. uh, that is fairly well known. And I think of, you know, going way back to Teddy White's Thunder Out of China, which deals mm-hmm. with this period. Um, Barbara Tuckman's biography of Stillwell, uh, which deals with this period. Um, so it isn't, uh, it isn't an obscure uh, episode in, in our history. Uh, I mean, it's 
I'm, I'm sure it's not you know as well known as as uh, as a lot of other episodes, but uh, there's a whole body of work. There's also that big kind of overriding question that has endured ever since that time, the kind of who lost China question. Mm -hmm. There were the um, there was the hunt uh, during the McCarthy period right. to blame people for mm -hmm. losing China and the controversy uh, that's yeah. continued uh, since then. So I, I think we're probably a minority, but we're at least in yeah. double digits. It's I came to it through um, meeting John Carter Vincent. Ah. So he lived in Cambridge at that point in time, mm -hmm. and I got to interview and have dinner with him a number of times. And he kind of brought me to focus on that period. What surprised you most? When you started out, you had certain preconceived notions. What surprised you most about that, you know, 1945? Well, I did have preconceived notions, and a lot of them didn't change radically, but they changed. Uh, I came... I came with the idea that I wasn't going to try to reinterpret the period. I was going to write a vivid, as you kindly put it, a novelistic uh, account of, of a, a fascinating, tumultuous, turbulent, and important period in, in history full of vivid, larger-than-life characters uh, on, all, on, on, on all ten sides of the fence. And, uh, and that was what I mostly wanted to do. I just wanted people to relive uh, that time and try to see it through the eyes of the, of the historical characters. But I guess in, in the back of my mind, I had a fairly, I had what I think is the, the standard view among enlightened liberal intellectuals, not the right-wing China lobby types, but um, people like Fairbank uh, or Barbara Tuckman or the aforementioned Teddy White, uh, that the United States made a terrible mistake in backing Chiang Kai-shek and in not understanding that Mao and the communists were the wave of the future. They ignored the advice of people like John Service, Jack Davies, and other Foreign Service officers that we needed to make an accommodation with the communists. We needed to be more friendly to them. And from that, and, and that's true, uh, I agree with that, uh, but the conclusion that's generally, or that's often drawn from that, I'm, I don't think I do agree with, and this is, where, this is where I surprised myself. I don't think, frankly, that it would have made much of a difference mm -hmm. in the end, whether we had followed their advice or, uh, or not, and we, in the end we didn't follow their advice. I don't think that if we, even if we had followed it, that the outcome would have been very different. And in the end, what really came as a surprise to myself is I came to a greater appreciation of the limits of the American capacity to shape the world to our specifications, even at a moment when our power was absolutely supreme in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, I, I would have thought, and I think the conventional wisdom at the time was that in 1945, with exclusive... Uh, possession of the atomic bomb, having just won the war on two fronts, uh, that the United States was in a position to shape the world the way it wanted to, and, and we weren't. But to the book kind of portrays Mao's move to Stalin as almost inevitable. Mm -hmm. You think that's right, given the later, the Sino-Soviet split, the documents that have been released subsequent to you know, whether it was the 30s, whether it was early in the war, the Soviets, basically Stalin would sell the Chinese Communist Party down the river 
for anything that helped Russia. Yeah. You know, it, it really, I mean, and the Chinese knew this. And you even today you see remnants of this hatred for the, uh, for this, uh, the, the Soviet Union Communist yeah. Party. Yeah, and of course, uh, when the Sino-Soviet split took place, Mao publicly made very derogatory comments about Stalin and, and uh, you know, uh, lent uh, a lot of credibility to the question that you just asked. Uh, but I don't think for two reasons, and, and the word inevitability is, is a hard one. I don't think that much is absolutely inevitable. I do think that Mao had choices. It wasn't that he inevitably had to do what he did, it's that he did do what he did by making choices. And I think that, I mean, he could have, I think, uh, during that period, try to be more Tito-like uh, than he was to try, could have been more like uh, Nehru uh, at the end of the war. Uh, but he wasn't. He, he jumped on the Cold War bandwagon on the side of Stalin. And maybe projecting backwards from that, I, I see what you describe as inevitability, uh, a very long history of uh, contacts of, uh, of a kind of client-patron relationship between the Chinese Communists and the Soviets, um, a very, very strong commitment on Mao's part, on Mao's side, to an ideological commitment to this notion of revolutionary change uh, and the possibility of revolutionary change, which, of course, we saw him trying to carry out when he became the supreme ruler of, of all of China. Um, and then the, uh, that, that's on the ideological side, and then on the practical side, uh, Stalin was was there uh, with a million, more than a million troops in Manchuria, uh, the second most powerful country in the world, and Mao was not in a good position to defy uh, his wishes. So, for both of those reasons, I mean, those are the two reasons why I think it was it was almost inevitable that Mao would make the choice that. That he did. You talk about these great historical characters in the book, and one of them is, of course, Patrick Hurley. Yeah. You know, who lands in Yan'an <coughs> and, and gives this Indian war hoop, you know, to the absolute shock of, of Mao and, and Joe Henley. And you pretty accurately portray his failings, you know, and kind of his views. But how much did that kind of push Mao and Joe into Stalin's arms? I certainly don't think that Hurley helped. Uh, and if there was uh, a, a, a chance for the United States, as Davies put it, to capture Mao from the Soviet embrace, uh, Hurley certainly did everything possible to sabotage that that chance unwittingly, of course, because that's what he would have wanted himself, except right. that, that Hurley... Hurley is a little bit mysterious, uh, and even after reading a lot about him and trying to figure him out, uh, and liking him in some ways that I didn't expect. Uh, I mean, his earlier career was really, in a lot of ways, exemplary. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't have expected it from a conservative Republican oil <laughs> lawyer, you know, zillionaire mm -hmm. like him. Uh, he was deeply attached to the Choctaw Indian nation, and he, he represented Choctaw. He was part Choctaw. I guess he spoke some Choctaw. Mm -hmm. um, it's 116 or 18. I don't remember. Is that what it is? I don't yeah. remember either. Uh, but he he was the he was the national lawyer for the Choctaw mm -hmm. tribe, and he made some wonderful, very liberal sounding uh, 
powerfully moral uh, declarations uh, when it came to the defense of the Choctaw interest. He was a very effective negotiator. He a very effective mediator. You can sort of understand why Roosevelt chose him to become his special emissary to China. It wasn't as ridiculous at the, at the time as it seems in retrospect. Right. Retrospect, it just looks horrendous. Yeah, and it was horrendous. One of I mean, his he worst was decisions of, of his presidency. Yeah. I mean, I call the chapter, the main chapter on Hurley the wrong man. Right. Uh, I completely agree with that. Again, you know, you have to kind of filter out the secondary factors from the primary ones. I think that Hurley was a secondary factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he certainly didn't help. Uh, but even if he had taken a more middle position, and even if that strange event hadn't happened where he went to talk to Mao in Yan'an and they signed an agreement and uh, there was a kind of a love fest, uh, uh, Hurley felt that Mao had signed on to a deal that Zhang would agree to. Uh, he brought it back to Chongqing and Zhang, Zhang rejected right. it right. out of hand. Um, uh, and then instead of maintaining a, a middle position, Hurley kind of threw in the towel and uh, became a uh, 100% uh, blank check backer of Chiang Kai-shek. What are the lessons for today? Obviously, it's a U.S.-China relations book. We're the National Committee on U.S.-China relations. What lessons should we take from this? Hmm. That's also a that's also a hard question. I've been I've been pondering it because I haven't. I'm not sure that I have a very specific and concrete lesson other than to know what you're doing. Um, to understand that these situations are inevitably going to be kind of murky, uh, that what you see might not be all that there is of reality, to recognize your limitations. Uh, Perhaps one important lesson is don't stake your national prestige on on an unattainable goal. Uh, and I wonder, for example, in Afghanistan, whether we're making that mistake again of staking our national prestige on a goal that, that can't be attained, which is the survival uh, and the extension of power of the corrupt and ineffectual Kabul yeah. regime, which is, to me, and so many, bears so many similarities to the Chiang Kai-shek government in 1945. Yeah, very interesting. And I, of course, come out differently because I believe the United States, you know, Hurley's failed policies actually pushed the Chinese Communist Party into the Soviets' embrace. So the lesson I actually take from it is be careful in what you do and you may create an enemy that you don't have. So I can actually see parallels to, you know, today, where we're often misinterpreting Chinese actions, um, not seeing them in the global context, not seeing them in the context of what the U.S. does itself and, you know, will demonize China where it doesn't deserve the demonization? Well, I can't prove that you're wrong. Um, and, you know, we can cordially disagree on that yeah. on that point. But I, uh, where one area where we do agree, and this is why my argument is, I think, a, a, a fairly complex one, that, that it was worth a try. Uh, what Hurley did was certainly damaging. Uh, it was not, it was not good. Um, you know, it's odd actually that um, Hurley uh, agreed with the with the China hands, the you know Service and Davies and uh, and these wonderful, brave, uh, honest, uh, deeply intelligent and deeply knowledgeable men, but who I think 
misjudged the uh, the depth of Mao's commitment to ide- to ideology and to and to totalitarianism. Hurley also did that. Uh, I mean, he he went to Moscow. Ma- Stalin told him these are not real communists, and and Hurley tended to believe it, but it led him to an opposite conclusion that Service and Davies came to. Hurley felt, well, they're not real communists. We can basically ignore them, and that. That clearly was a mistake that was worth a try. I don't think it would have made a difference, and that's where we disagree, but we certainly don't disagree that it was worth a try. Absolutely. I've had with me this afternoon Richard Bernstein, author of China 1945. It's a great read. I strongly recommend it. Richard, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Steve.